Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Again, good morning. If I've not met you, my name is David Cumby. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at Apostles. And if you're new, I uh, just want to welcome you. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. We've been uh, doing some different things over the last few weeks, and uh, we're about to start a new series, our fall series, next Sunday. I'm very excited about that, looking at evangelism, really doing an extended study of John chapter 4. So if you wanted to start looking at that even this week, you could read through John 4 as we enter into that for about the next six weeks or so. But this week, I wanted to kind of take advantage of uh, an opportunity as we turn again into the fall to maybe look at something that will be helpful as we think about ourselves as a worshiping people and what happens here on a Sunday morning. So I think it's really important uh, that we as followers of Christ are in the regular habit of asking the question, why? Why is a critically important question in life and certainly when it comes to why we do the things that we do as followers of Christ. And so I know some of you are new, relatively new to, for example, the Anglican tradition. And so there may be some things that we do in the course of our worship that are new to you, and you had questions about those. And one of those things may be communion. And so this morning I wanted to ask, why communion? Why do we do what we do? Every service, every Sunday just about ends with us coming to this table together. And why do we do what we do, and why do we do it the way that we do it? And what I want, what I hope this morning is, uh, is that we can kind of answer that question together and that our practice of Holy Communion is informed by both a biblical understanding of the meal that Jesus instituted in the scriptures that we just read, and it avoids any temptation we might have to kind of let that just drift into this vague sense of, I know it's important, but I'm not really sure why, or even worse, kind of empty ritual, Uh, It's less about doing things the right way, I would also say. This is not about, hey, if you don't do it exactly like we do it here at Apostles, you're not doing it correctly or, or anything like that. This is more about really trying to get, again, at the question of the right why more than the right way. So, so that's, that's what I want to do this morning. And, and to start, I thought it would be helpful just to look at maybe uh, some general comments about what I would call a theology of food. Have you ever thought about a theology of food uh, in your life? Food is not just a physical reality, it's a spiritual reality. Uh, and so to think about what that means, I think would be helpful as we're talking about coming to this holy meal together. So uh, to begin with, think about the last time you had a great meal with someone. Eating with people is one of my favorite things to do. Great food, great drink, great friends. I love a big table with a big spread. You know, I love eating meals. And there's just something when you're doing that with friends, uh, when you're doing that with others around a table, there's something um, almost kind of magical at times. You know, and I would say more than magical, spiritual about just sharing a great meal together. And I don't think that's just a, a kind of a sentimental reality. I think it connects with something deep within us. Actually, I think it connects with something that's created within us. And when we begin to think about meals and food in spiritual terms, I think it pushes back against a tendency we have 
uh, to divide the world into what I would say is kind of physical on one hand and spiritual on the other, or temporal and eternal. And there's certainly some, some differences there, but in a very real sense, if eating is not just a physical act, but a spiritual act, I think we have a better kind of holistic understanding of that physical and spiritual reality. It connects us, in other words, with a created desire for more than just food or survival, but for life and ultimately communion with others. And so for that reason, eating is a powerful and spiritual part of your life. Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but it certainly is. Now, with that being said, like any desire in our lives, it can go off the rails, right? And maybe you've experienced this in different ways. You know, a few too many bowls of ice cream might be my confession uh, during the week. Uh, in our culture, people misuse food in lots of different ways. Uh, people abuse drink. People struggle with eating disorders. Uh, a disordered relationship with food can actually lead to all kinds of addictions and abuse, health problems, environmental problems, guilt and shame about our bodies and our health. And it can actually, I think, contribute to, to even to shallow and broken relationships. Um, and so, lest we think I'm overstating the case uh, about the importance of food and the spiritual significance of food, I just want to point out the Bible actually confirms this view. Uh, and one thing that just has really stood out to me as I've thought about this is Genesis 3. So even in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, food is very significant in God's creation. And this is highlighted by what happens in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 um, basically elucidates the fact that food is one of our most basic and essential desires that we were created with. And that our relationship with food is symbolic of our relationship with the physical world and is like every other part of us affected by our sin and our broken relationships with God and one another. So in the fall, in other words, what is the key aspect of the fall, the physical manifestation? What are they tempted by? Food, right? Yeah, so isn't that interesting? Just kind of step back and think about, okay, everything that that means. Now, sometimes we just go, oh, that's purely symbolic, but I think it actually is more than just purely symbolic. I think there's something very important being communicated, again, about food. Food is at the heart, in some ways, of what it means to be human and about the true and good and beautiful realities of the created world. And so all that's kind of wrapped up in a theology of food. We could talk about that uh, for a lot. People write books about this, and I think there's many out there that would be worth reading. But I just wanted to kind of highlight that as a general theology of food. And I want to shift now to the practice of Jesus um, when it comes to food. So we all ache for our desires to be rightly restored. And whether we realize it or not, our deepest desire is for God and in him unmarred relationships both with him and with one another, or what we might call communion. And as disciples of Jesus who want to be with him, become like him, and do the kinds of things that he did, we might ask, is there a particular practice that Jesus gives us that helps us rightly restore and order our desires for God, and in particular, this relationship with food? And so that's why I want us to read Luke chapter 22, where Jesus actually instructs his disciples with this practice uh, around the table related to food and drink, and he gives it to them and instructs them to do it as often as they gather. 
And you see that being worked out in the New Testament. It becomes a hallmark of their gatherings that they eat and they share a meal. So a few questions I want to just kind of focus in on and really just focus in on one particular uh, phrase that Jesus mentions here. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Share this meal in remembrance of me. And I want to ask two questions. What is this? And then what does it mean to remember? So what is this? Do this in remembrance of me. And then what does it mean to actually remember it? So this, I would say, is not merely the bread and wine. It's not merely the plate and the cup. This means the bread and the wine as a sign of the life that Christ offers us in community around the table. Life with the crucified and risen Jesus sitting at the head or at the heart of the table and the meal. And so it's more than just these physical things. In other words, Jesus is not just saying, hey, this is a good spiritual thing to do, a habit you should do uh, regularly, eat a cracker and take a sip of wine. He's not saying that. He's saying much, much more. And so it really, ultimately, as we gather around this table, should draw us to the person of Jesus. He is, uh, in Revelation, the bridegroom. He is the Lord of the feast. And so he invites us to his table. So this is really to come into his presence. Second thing is that uh, this idea of remember. Remember means more than just call to mind a memory. Much more than just calling to mind something that has happened. In this practice, part of what happens, and this, this, is, this is a mystical aspect in the truest and best part of our faith. Somehow, when we remember at this table, Time and space get all mashed up together in a way that is unique and supernatural. In other words, I love what Winfield Bevins describes. He says about this, he says, in terms of the liturgy altogether, what we do here in our worship on Sunday mornings, he says, into the liturgy, to enter into it, is to enter into kingdom time and kingdom space. In a very real way, the past, the present, and the future are all coming together. What does he mean by that? The past, Jesus, and not just his death, but his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the giving of his Holy Spirit. All that's come before. The present, ourselves, our community, gathered here in the name of Christ. And the future, looking forward to Jesus' return, the messianic banquet that I just mentioned. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, for as often as you eat and drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see the past, the present, and the future. All right there. We proclaim now what has happened before in anticipation of his return. And so time and uh, space all get kind of mashed up. It's a great quote from an Anglican bishop named N.T. Wright. Some of you may be familiar with him. He says this. He says, the hardest thing about the sacraments, which Holy Communion is a sacrament, a sign, as I've said, the most difficult thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bring the past story and the divine action of the past into the present such that the present participants become part of the story and receive the benefit of what he calls actualization. He's just using actualization as another way to describe remember. To remember then 
means to let the past break into the present and shape our future. When we come to the table, we are letting Jesus' life both inform and form our life through the supernatural work of the Spirit. And so with that in mind, I I just want us to maybe recalibrate a little bit. Maybe some of this is new. Think about what's happening when we come to this table together. It is kingdom time and kingdom space. It is not just a physical reality, but a spiritual one. There is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I was talking with somebody this morning who hadn't been here in a while, and she just said, I've been so hungry in a sense because I haven't had communion while I've been away over the summer, and I'm I'm so excited to have communion. There's a spiritual hunger. We get fed, in a sense, every time we gather and come to this table because of the reality of what's taking place. So with that in mind, um, I do want to make a quick kind of run through church history because I think if you're, if you're following here what we've read in the scripture and then you think about what we do, they don't exactly match up with what Jesus does with his disciples versus where we end up now. How did this kind of evolve or form into what we do today as the church? And so to, to, to kind of get there, I wanna talk through very briefly and explain kind of this, uh, this development. And the best way I, I know to do this is talk about kind of the six different names that this meal has had through the history of the church. And five of them appear in the New Testament, and one is kind of a later development within the church. And so, uh, so here are the, the six names maybe of this meal, and I think this is a helpful way to kind of understand the different facets of what's happening in this meal. The first is communion. Uh, most common, it's from the Greek uh, word koinonia, which if you've been here, what does koinonia mean? Fellowship, yeah, fellowship. Another translation uh, might mean also participation. So fellowship, participating in life together. Uh, this comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it, is, is it not a participation or a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so as as Anglicans, we call this meal Holy Communion. And at the table, we are uh, to have community with Jesus and one another. We, again, as Wright says, actualize Jesus' presence. We give him our full attention and affection. The Lord's table is about presence, and it teaches us to recognize that Jesus is with us. We commune with Jesus him in a unique and powerful way. And so it trains our hearts to be aware that Jesus is present in all of our lives, not just here for a certain time in a certain place. And it invites us to be present with one another and live in communion, not just here in a certain time and certain place, but throughout our lives. It's one of the reasons we share meals in our life groups. It's a significant part of our rhythm. There's a level of connection and intimacy and relationship communion that happens around the table. So one, one, uh, one name is communion. A second name is the breaking of the bread. The breaking of the bread. You may be familiar with this. This is more popular in, in some other traditions. Uh, it appears often in Luke and Acts, Luke chapter 9, 22, 24, Acts chapter 2, uh, Acts chapter 20, Acts, uh, let's see, 27, uh, as well as in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So 
lots of reference to this in the scripture, and it's a powerful image because it connects with Jesus' sacrifice. In the ancient world, bread was a staple and it was broken and it was broken in order to be shared. You would tear away a piece and you would give the loaf to the next person. And so in the same way, Jesus was broken on the cross and he was given to us. In the breaking of bread, we receive life. And so in fact, we are reminded every time we eat that our life depends on the sacrifice of something or someone else, whether it's a plant or an animal. Something dies so that we might live. So food is a constant reminder in that way. It's sacramental, small s, sacramental, in the sense that it's a constant reminder of Jesus' sacrifice and our dependence on Christ and on his creation. So literally we're invited, as we heard from Psalm 34, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Every time you taste something good, every time you have some brisket, taste and see the Lord is good. Cookies, the Lord is good. Right? Whatever it is, the Lord is good. Taste, Psalm 34, 8. All right, so breaking the bread. Three, Eucharist. Some of these I'll move a little bit faster. Um, but so Eucharist, most popular, it's actually uh, common in the ancient church and the world today. Uh, from the Greek of uh, thanksgiving is where that word uh, comes from, Eucharist. It means to give thanks. And in the Gospels and in Paul, uh, we see it quite often. And the church begins to use this name for this meal because in this meal, we are remembering all that we have in Christ and all that God has given to us. And what is the heart posture response to that? Gratitude, gratitude. So when we come to this meal, we come with hearts full of thanksgiving. So it's a Eucharistic meal. Four, the agape feast, uh, sometimes called the, the love feast. Um, sometimes people get a little bit nervous about this one, this name, uh, you know, conjures up ideas from the 60s and some weird stuff. You know, this is, uh, this is an ancient practice and it's actually found in scripture. Uh, it's only used in one place. It's in Jude 12, but it is often used by the early church fathers in the first few centuries after Christ. And apart from the Eucharist, interestingly, it was the most common name for the meal in the early church. And it highlights that this meal was a celebration marked by joy. All cultures use meals as a part of celebrating special events and special occasions. Part of being human is to celebrate. So often we think of this meal, I think, because of maybe some perspectives we have or traditions we grew up, we think of this meal as a somber, introspective, individual, serious practice. And it is a serious practice. But originally it was a feast. It was a, it was a true meal. And one of the problems I think that... Uh, that accompany this meal, and Paul addresses this, is there were some abuses with the food, right? People were not sharing, and people were drinking too much, and all these kinds of things that he addresses uh, in the New Testament, and so there were problems that developed this, and so there was, uh, there was, there was a, a season which just kind of fell out of practice because there was a desire to kind of restore some order, you could say. But there's a place, I think, for this in our modern practice. And it's recognizing that, yes, there's a, there's a posture of repentance as we come to this table, and yet there's also the place of celebration. We give thanks and we praise and we celebrate this life that we have in Christ. Um, let, me, let me just share this quote from Philip Yancey, because I, I, I've loved I've always loved this quote because I think it helped me reframe how I approach the table with this in mind. He says, this table is different. 
It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnity making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds. <laughs> Hold up our little cups high and toast to the lost sinners found and dead brothers and sisters made alive. I love that picture. So that's an invitation. If you want to dance down the aisle, you go for it. We will clap. Yeah, or dance around the room. Yeah, however you want to do it. All right, so, uh, so that's the fourth of the, the love feast. And then number five is the Lord's Supper. So listen to this from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty through 22. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So again, this is kind of back to where does this idea come from? It comes from scripture. It draws really on this idea of a covenantal meal. Right, so this is an act of commitment between two groups who have made a covenant commitment to one another. This meal isn't just about eating and drinking together. It is a meal centered around Jesus and about making a commitment to place your full trust in him. Leave behind a way of life apart from him. Take up your cross and live in obedience and faith. And so there is a gravity right, to the Lord's Supper because we honor our Lord and our King and our Savior Jesus and we renew our pledge as we come to this table to follow him and to obey him. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks to the judgment of himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick and among you and many have died. The gravity of this meal and what is taking place should not be lost. We celebrate, but we recognize the gravity. And I would say we need this because we live in a world that tempts us to redefine who we are and how we live based on the world's perspective and other voices. And this is the same temptation that Adam and Eve faced. And when we come to the table, it is a moment where we're invited to recommit and reconnect and retune our hearts to live in line with his truth and his grace. So that's why this is an important way to think about communion as well. So number six, last one. This is, uh, this is called the mass. Now, if you grew up in a Catholic tradition, this is, this is the vernacular you're used to. It's called the mass in the Roman Catholic tradition. The word mass comes from the Latin term mission or missio because the Latin mass ends with a call to go out into the world. And you see that in our liturgy. Let us go forth rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia. The Anglican liturgy draws on this pattern of worship that came out of the early and the medieval uh, liturgies. And so we have this post-communion prayer and dismissal. But this has kind of morphed and changed primarily through the Reformation uh, such that some of the significance of what took place in the Mass has been altered. So there's still some of the practices that we find from a Roman Catholic tradition. And you might be, oh, this feels familiar to me if you're coming from that tradition. But actually some of the significance and the meaning and the theology underneath what's happening has been 
uh, has changed, again, through the Reformation. So what is that change? I, I would describe it this way. The meal, uh, it's important to understand that when we talk about this in our Anglican tradition, what we're referring to is a sacrament. A sacrament is a physical material sign or symbol of an invisible spiritual reality. And in the Anglican church, there are two practices instituted by Jesus that we, in our tradition, call sacraments. Can anybody name them? Baptism and? Communion, Eucharist, great. So uh, as a sacrament, the meal then, communion, the Eucharist, becomes um, over time less of a true meal. So this is answering kind of the question, how do we get to this versus some of these other versions? It becomes less of a true meal and more of a, uh, a sign, right? A religious uh, kind of oriented act in the best sense of religious that orients our hearts to Jesus. And it kind of has its roots in a meal, but it's developed over time into what we practice today. And the 39 Articles, which is our doctrinal statement of, of the historic Anglican faith, helps kind of describe what all this sign means. And so this is what it says in Article 28. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves, one to another, but rather it is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death insomuch that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ. And likewise, the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation, uh, which comes from Roman Catholic tradition, or the change of the substance of bread and wine, in the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, that is scripture, but is repugnant to the plain words of scripture, overthroweth the nature of a sacrament, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. So in other words, there's some distinct differences here theologically um, that have developed and that mark this Anglican practice. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after a, a heavenly and spiritual manner is what the article says. And the means by where the body, whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is by faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshiped. There are many reasons for this shift or the sacramental practice. And, and some of them are good and some of them uh, you know, are less helpful, I think. But, but it's trying to get at the, the, the significance of what is actually taking place here. And so just real quickly, let me just say, I, I think there's kind of three, um, three ways that this is kind of forming and shaping into what we have today in light of what I just said. And they're practical, it's a practical reason, a pastoral reason, and a theological reason. So let me just give this to you really quick. A practical reason for this change uh, into what we have today. As the church grew and moved from homes house church models and, and kind of a secret or underground church to cathedrals and public worship, uh, having a weekly or daily meal with hundreds or thousands of people simply became impractical. It was just hard to pull it off. And so the church had to rethink, how are we gonna kind of honor this sacrament, this instituted meal, but do it differently? So there's a practical reality. Pastorally, uh, the meals were often abused and created opportunities for people to take advantage we heard of that in the reading from uh, 1 Corinthians. By 692 AD, the love feast actually had been banned from use in the church because of their so much abuse. So there was a pastoral desire to kind of help create some order uh, 
And then the last one is theological. There's lots of thinking and disagreement about what actually occurs in the eating of the bread. You hear that in the article. Um, and there's these big word categories, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, real presence, memorial, and, um, and, and I'm not going to go into all the details of what each of those uh, mean. <laughs> so, um, so if you're disappointed, uh, I'll give you some resources and you can read up on that. Um, we just don't have the time. Um, but let, let me say this. Um, there, are, there are differences that have been identified that I think in part are problematic because they don't address the truth of what I said at the very beginning, the reality that spiritual and physical are not completely separate realities, uh, that we live in a world that is inhabited by the creator God, and that we live in a world, um, as one theologian has said it, that is enchanted. And I think it's a great way to kind of think about it. And we've lost that. Um, the enlightenment kind of made us think about reality differently and made us parse out things. And so we, don't, we, we think of bread as just bread. And we think of prayer as super spiritual. And we don't, we, we, we don't have categories that kind of see how those two things are related. And so I think part of that kind of led to these discussions about What's happening to the bread and the wine in communion? And I'm not trying to pun on this. I, we do hold to a, a, a view of that Christ is truly present in some mystical and powerful way. And I do mystery not as like Scooby-Doo, but mystery as in it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a God thing that we can't fully understand. And it's a gift in that. And so we, we celebrate that, but we're not trying to explain it uh, beyond what scripture explains. So all that to say, during the Protestant Reformation, there was an attempt, I think, to recover some right practices of communion. So Calvin, Luther, Cranmer reimagined the sacrament to be rooted in the ancient ways of thinking about the meal. So it was, again, communal, covenantal, marked by thanksgiving and celebration. And then some people took that even further. The Anabaptists, like Moravians, Brethren, Quaker, they returned even to the love feast kind of model. That's how they tend to think about this. So so I've given you a lot of information, I realize, um, and really just, uh, I wanted us to, it's a little bit different um, kind of teaching, but I just wanted us to kind of understand the different facets of what's happening here. What I would say is, in some manner, um, all of these inform what we're doing here on Sunday morning. Um, and I think there's some important distinctions, and I've tried to um, highlight some of those for our Anglican tradition but I, my hope is that we can kind of hold up these different ways of seeing the meal and that it actually helps us to appreciate even more and value even more what's happening when we come to this table. So let me just say this to close, important takeaways. So why does all of this matter for you and me for our lives week in and week out? How does it connect with life tomorrow morning at work or school? I always think it's helpful. It's not the most important question necessarily, but it is an important one. How, how do we kind of take this away? I would just say there's two things. One, communion is a sacrament that points not only to our spiritual reality, but to the way of life that we share in Jesus. There's a helpful symbolism in what we do with the furnishings and the instruments and the candles. But all of this ultimately is not about the ritual. It's about Jesus. It's leading us to Jesus and fans the affection in our hearts for Christ. So second takeaway I would say is that faith is practiced together. What we do on Sunday should lead us to living out our faith together. Holy communion, by its very name, uh, invites us to foster a daily communion with God 
and with one another. This is why we've taken up the practice of eating meals with one another in homes, and we are uh, attempting to recover this ancient practice of the meal as kind of central to our way of life together. So those two takeaways, it's a sacrament. It's, it's an expression of our faith practiced together. I hope this has been helpful uh, to you. If you have questions, like I said, covered a lot of material. If there's questions you have about this, I would love to talk to you more about it. Invite you to pick up Simply Anglican. Uh, We've got copies at the welcome table. Uh, Winfield Bevins does a great job of talking through some of these uh, things that I've discussed this morning. But let me just pray and ask God to continue to, to draw us to himself as we continue to learn and grow and ask why together. Lord, we, we just want to thank you, uh, Lord, that your scripture uh, teaches us everything that we need to know for life with you and in you. And Lord, we thank you for the instruction that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for uh, these words of institution from Jesus. We thank you for the instructions and teaching of Paul. We thank you for the witness of your scriptures to the beauty and power and the sacramental truth of meals and food. And so, Lord, even as we come this morning to this table, we pray that you would draw us again to Jesus. We pray that our hearts would be fed and encouraged. Lord, that as we leave here, we would feel sustained in our faith and hungry for more of you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we come and we prepare now by um, swearing our allegiance to you with the creed, and confessing our need for you uh, with our prayers of confession and bringing all that we are to this table, the table of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.